and an opportunity just to uh, have the community come into our church. So it was good to see some of you there last night, and the gospel was presented. Uh, I, I think we had four or five hundred people here. It's good the fire marshal didn't come by, but um, we were here, and we made it work, and there was a lot of help and hands that made it happen. So uh, thanks for being part of that last night. It was a lot of fun to, to see uh, take place here. Well, remember the challenge I gave you last week to read through Ruth uh, one time each week during this series? How'd it go? All right. Oh, good. A couple of you guys. Good. Good. It's so helpful to do that since it's a story to read through it, to keep it fresh in your mind. We're obviously not going to be able to rehash every detail in this four-week series every time from the week before uh, for heading into the next chapter. So I encourage you, keep reading it each week. Um, but here's a little review we need to do to set the stage uh, as we um, jump into chapter two today. Remember, here's this little book, Ruth, four chapters, short little story set in a time of the judges. Do you remember that? Set in the time of the judges. It was a dark time in Israel's history. The darkest probably of moral decay and social decay, political decay for, all, for God's people. One of the darkest times. Things you might even say were falling apart for God's people. It was absolutely terrible time. They desperately wanted in this time of the judges a king. They thought, you know, let's get a king. He'll set things straight. He'll figure this thing out. Here's what happens. Elimelech, an Israelite, you heard him mention, he, he's the, uh, the father of this house. He takes his family, uh, Naomi, and their two sons, you remember, from Bethlehem to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. Uh, there was no food. And so they said, well, let's leave Bethlehem. Let's go to this other place called Moab. A place, they went from God's place, Bethlehem, to a place, Moab, that worships idols. And it had actually not treated God's people very well in history either. So it's a really curious, maybe not even the wisest choice. Well, in Moab, he dies. And ten years later, Naomi's two sons die, leaving Naomi to care now for these two widows uh, who hadn't had children with her sons, these two widows, Orpah and Ruth, who the book uh, is named after, Ruth. And so Orpah decides to stay in Moab. Ruth decides to go back with Naomi. Uh, She makes this faithful, courageous decision to cling to Naomi, we heard last week, because she's clung to Naomi's God, Yahweh. And so she travels from her homeland now, Moab. She's from Moab back to Bethlehem when they hear now the famine is over, okay? So there's this uncertain future now for these two women as we get to chapter 2. Both lost their husbands. There's no men in their life, no spouses to come along and support and protect, provide. Remember, you couldn't just run out to a Costco to get some food. You couldn't just run out and get a job to support yourself. It wasn't our culture. We've got to try to imagine and think differently. It wasn't like, it wasn't that kind of world. They were without food. Females in a male-driven culture during one of the most evil and confused times in Jewish history. And last week we saw they responded in two different ways. Naomi's grief, understandable grief, turned into bitterness towards God. And she understood He was all-powerful, but as we saw last week, as she said, I get He's all-powerful. The Lord's hand has brought this upon me, she said. But she didn't trust His good promises. He's turned on me, she said. He's, he's turned on me. Maybe you feel like that in your life today. Some of us do, I know. Right now you're feeling like, God has turned against me. He's turned His back. He's against me. You might be feeling that today. Ruth has a different response we saw. Ruth responded in this way. Do you remember? Do not urge me to leave you, she said to Naomi, or return from following you. From where you go, I'm going to go. And where you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, she even says. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Now, we talk about a vow, huh? That's some pretty serious words there. Talk about a vow. It's a response that defies uh, conventional thinking. It just does. Because she's been, here's why, transformed by the God of Naomi. That's why. She's clung to that God of Naomi, and so she makes this crazy decision. It looks crazy on the surface. Leave your family and your people because she's clinging to the one true God and His promises. So she gets up. She moves with no guarantees on the other side. In fact, more than likely, uh, from a human perspective, it would have been worse. She's going to a people that maybe wouldn't accept her because she's a Moabite. It's likely she's going to live the rest of her days alone and possibly destitute. And so today we look at about trusting God as these two women do. Trusting God, especially as we've seen already, Ruth does. Even in the little moments of our life. We see some big mo- mo- uh, moments here for Ruth and Naomi. Really big. But we're going to talk today about even trusting God in the, the little moments of life. Because if you think about your life, isn't that where most of your life is lived? It's kind of little moments. The mundane just day-to-day of every decision-making. Day after day. That's where faithful following of Christ really gets played out. In that day-to-day, even in the mundane decisions of life, trusting God with persevering, with a difficult child, trusting God with a shrinking checking account, trusting God as you look for a new job, trusting God as you are in science class, right? Trusting God when you're in Algebra 2. It's like, what am I doing? What's going on? Trusting God in the mundane the little things. So today we're going to talk about trusting God and look at the lives of Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi. In that order. And we're going to see that the transforming power of God's kind grace in the lives of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And we'll see that we too, everyone in this room, can be transformed as we place our trust in that same grace available to us today in Christ. So grab that outline. Have your text open to Ruth 2. We got there for some fill-ins for you. And hopefully you got your text open so you can measure, am I saying what that's saying? Because that's really what we want to get to, the text and what it says there. Let's look at Ruth first today. As we see first this ongoing in chapter 2, active obedience of Ruth. This active trust and living of this, this virtuous, this courageous woman. Ruth. But it's based on something more. Or more, I say more accurately, it's based on someone. These actions of Ruth. Ruth wasn't just, you might read this and say, oh, she's just a great hero. Or you look at Boaz, he's just a great hero. They're just heroes. Ruth wasn't just inherently good or inherently just, she just happened to be more courageous. She trusted a good and promise-keeping God. That's what we're going to see. That's what drove her. That's what changed her. Here's our first point today. Ruth's trust in God produces this active kindness that we see. This trust in God produces this active kindness. We're obviously not going to read the whole chapter again today, but I'll read a few verses here and there. So look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field. And, and glean among the shears, or of the ears of grain. 
sorry, let me go uh, to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. So now they're in Bethlehem. Now they're back in Bethlehem, Naomi's home. Not Ruth, she's from Moab. But they have no crop. (laughs) They have no food. Probably no money. And we get this little hint of this this guy. This guy named Boaz. This this little hint there of this worthy, that we're going to see, virtuous man named Boaz. A godly man we're going to see today. A true godly man. As true as Ruth is a godly woman. A man from the same clan as Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband, from the same kind of group of people. But Ruth didn't know that here. We've got to be clear. Ruth didn't know that here. The text doesn't let us think that Ruth had some kind of idea about Boaz. Naomi never mentions him. The writer does. She'd been gone 10 years. You know, being gone from 10 years from a place, have you ever been gone and gone back or even longer, you forget some things. She probably remembered he was family member, but maybe didn't know if he was still in the area. She'd been gone a long time. She never mentions him. Maybe she'd forgotten about him. She never mentions Boaz. And so here they are, stuck. And Ruth takes this kind initiative. There's no other really words to call it. This kind initiative and says, you know, Naomi, let me, let me get out there. And, and the, the barley harvest has begun and what, what perfect time for God to bring us back. He could have brought us back at any other time. Harvest is just starting. Let me get out there and, and see if I can find favor in some field uh, and, and glean. What does that mean? It means you kind of follow behind gleaning. You follow behind those who were reaping and gathering from the barley or the wheat, and you follow behind them, and basically you'd pick up their scraps. That's basically what gleaning is. You go out and you, you pick up the scraps from someone else's field. You know, we need to eat, Naomi Ruth's probably saying. And Well, let me try and get out there and provide for us. And Naomi's response, okay, go. That's it. That's all she responds with. Okay, go. And we see as the story, as the narrative continues, is that she's kind to Naomi as she goes with her. And kind when she arrives and they get to Bethlehem. And and kind when she arrives at the field. The field of Boaz that she has no idea. She's so humble and hardworking. She works all day. Did you catch it? You'll see it up on the screen. Uh, uh, This is the foreman saying to Boaz when he came and asked, who is this lady? She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she's continued all day from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So she's like, she's been working hard all day long. She's out there working. So Ruth, this foreigner, this, this Moabite, goes out alone in this strange land. And remember, this was a time of the judges. Uh, really not a safe time for anybody to be out walking on the street. This was not safe for her to do. It was not safe. There was a great danger here, as we get further in the story, we even know, of being assaulted. I mean, to be realistic and honest, 
of being attacked. And yet she goes. Why? Why? Because she trusts God's kindness to her. There's no other way you can describe it. She trusts God's promises to His people. The people which she has become now a part of. A member member of. Do you remember? Her trust isn't blind. It's not just a blind trust or without reason. It has great reasons. It has God's promises behind it. That's the only reason she can act. Because real promises have been made. And as a woman of of God now, part of His people, she's trusting them. and is going to act. One of those promises of God, well really you might say it was one of His laws that gave her hope to act, which was rooted really as we're talking grace today, was rooted in His grace and mercy. It's important. One of those laws. It was a command of God that gave Ruth hope. But there's something so important for us not to miss in it. But I want us to see it. Ruth probably knew this command because it's not only here in Deuteronomy 24. It's all over the Old Testament, other places. God said this to His people in His law. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. So, God's people, he's saying, you know, when you gather, when you you go out to the fields and your produce, leave some behind in kindness. Don't gather at all for the foreigner, for the poor, for for the widow, so they can gather and eat too. It's a command. But like any command of God, like any command He gives His people or gives us, they, they, they're only ever truly followed if there's a heart behind it. A change of heart behind it. All the things God says for us that are good and to follow and to, ways to live, you'll never truly follow them unless your heart is behind it and in it and desiring it too. You can keep a rule for a little while with some good effort, you know? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But unless your heart is truly in it, it won't become your actual life and who you are. It's impossible. And that's where those final words come in. Look again at them. Let's not let them slip away. Before he ever says, I command you and I expect you, he says this, I've saved you. Do you see it there? He said, I've saved you. You remember Egypt? You you were slaves. You were slaves. And I saved you. Therefore now, go live for me. It's, it's this idea that redemption gives us motivation. Uh, being saved out of slavery, out of dire situations, is to, to move them in their heart. You might call it grace motivation. Uh, redemption motivation, as I said. God says, don't you remember? You were slaves in Egypt. How can you not give? Give. And to us, He says, you know, God's just saying, Are you struggling with kindness, which is costly? 
Look at how much I've given you. Look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've bestowed upon you. You know, I've saved you from Egypt, Israelites. I've redeemed you from Egypt. Remember, you were slaves. You were not a people. And now look at what I've given you. Undeserving. Kindness. Salvation. Redemption. My love for you based on my grace alone. My grace alone to you. The Israelites even, we think about them. The Israelites weren't more deserving. They were a tiny little, actually they were no one. They were Abraham. They became a, they were a tiny little wandering desert people amongst these giant powerful nations. Remember that in your heart, he says. And so leave a little on the ground for the poor. And Ruth, she knows this. She knows this, and so she goes out hoping to find uh, a, a, a kind landowner, a kind man, a kind landowner who was motivated by this same grace, by this same God, by this same law. So you find food to take and gather. Let, let, let's take this. Let's get really practical, though. I don't want to miss this for us. How, here's how this principle this works, as we're talking about. Ruth's mind might have been going, wow, Go to Israel with Naomi? I mean, it could mean losing even more than I have now. I mean, Naomi's got nothing. Go with her? She gets there. Go out and look for food when I could be harassed or worse? I mean, this is a risk. But God, you have given me everything. And he was her everything. I'm a foreigner, God, who's worshipped idols. And yet you've wrapped me into your people. This is Ruth's mind still probably. And as you've saved them, you've saved me. How could I not risk in kindness for Naomi? You've wrapped me in. How about your heart? How about your own mind? Do you struggle with kindness? Here's why I do. Here's why I know we all do. It's because kindness costs us something, doesn't it? To do something kind for somebody else, it costs us something. You might say kindness is a sacrificial, voluntary, it's relational, it's an act where we relieve someone's suffering by giving of what we have. That's kind of what kindness is. So how about for us? How does the principle work? My frustrating child, your frustrating child, my impatient boss, my nagging spouse, whatever it might be for you, my insensitive friend, or the poor, the less unfortunate, my science class, right? How does it work? Just like Ruth, I too am a foreigner who has worshipped idols of power, of lust, of self-preservation, of comfort, of pride, of selfishness, and yet you've wrapped me into your people. Same principle. And as you've saved them, you've saved me by kind, gracious love. Do you trust that? Do you really trust that? A lot of times, here's what I think. I look a little more like Naomi. I think of God offering kindness the same way I tend to normally offer kindness. You do a bit for me. I'll do a bit for you. You scratch my back. I'll scratch uh, your back. Tit for tat is the phrase, right? That's how I think of God. I haven't read my Bible. I haven't been to church. 
I haven't prayed. God must be against me. He, 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 I, I blew it today. I blew it. I know it. He's not going to be kind to me anymore. He's not going to be kind to me. Doesn't that thought go in your head? He's turned his back on me. He's against me. That runs through my head when I have those moments. Here's what we do. We stop and we say, okay, like Ruth, God has shown me so much kindness and just because He is kindness and just because He is gracious and He loves me, as I love Him, may I love others now. Let me move out in kindness. Let's put it in the Gospel context. Take a look at this verse. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this. One has died for all. There's the good news. Therefore all have died. And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. As Christ loved us, dying for us, giving Himself up for us, so we too, then He says, we're controlled by that love. And we can be kind. And the verse goes on and says, and not live just for ourselves. Because isn't that what kindness is? Living for others? When you realize and you trust that you have everything in Him, as Ruth has been transformed, as she has trusted God's kindness, you can too. You can be absolutely changed from the inside out. That's what's, going, that's what's taking place here for Ruth. That's what was taking place even in that law. I saved you from Egypt. Well, Ruth has been transformed to this kind woman by the grace of God. But let's look at Boaz too. Let's look at Boaz too. So Boaz, this man is mentioned here in verse 1. He's a worthy man, it says. Just right off the bat, he's a worthy man. He's an upstanding person in the community. As a worthy man from Elimelech's clan, it says. He's about to become really prominent in this story. A main character, you might say. He's about to really kind of show up here. And it's there he's mentioned there to, to make us curious. And I, I hope a bit hopeful. Because you know, their situation's really bad. But this man, Boaz, is mentioned. Maybe things aren't as dire, you might be thinking, as, and as bleak as Naomi said. Remember when she said, don't come with me, Ruth. I've got nothing for you. We know that's not true now. Well, from here, the narrative really will revolve around uh, Ruth and Boaz. And here's what we see in Boaz. Boaz receives Ruth in kindness. Because he too knows the kindness of God. We're going to see this amazing interplay, interchange you might call, between Boaz and Ruth. And he receives her because he too knows the kindness of God. So what happens is Don read the passage for us this morning. She comes to Boaz's field and the foreman who's there, Boaz isn't there yet, the foreman, uh, probably too a man of grace, he lets her glean. He lets her gather, pick up the scraps uh, in the field. But Boaz comes along, and, and what's the fir- very first sign? Did you catch it? What's the very first sign that he's a, a man that, that is God-saturated? Absolutely God-saturated. What are the first words out of his mouth? To his employees in the field, did you see it there? Ver- verse 4 says, The Lord be with you. He shows up at his place of employment where he's hired a bunch of men. He says, the Lord be with you. Here's a man who leads with God's blessing. It's the first words out of his mouth. He leads with God's blessing. 
God's Word. God's promises. He says, the Lord be with you. He probably shouted it out into the field. And they all responded back, the Lord be with you too. When you've been God-saturated, when you've been overwhelmed with God, like a man like Boaz, he moves into every area of your life. He revolutionizes every area of your life. If Jesus Christ is who He says He is, when you come to Him, He will move into every area of your life and revolutionize it. And if He's not, and you've got little corners and little pieces and Christ is for Sunday and church is for Sunday and the rest of your week is it's so far from your mind you can't even imagine thinking about it, you need to examine your life. I have to examine my life. When I find those places, if He is who He says He is, Lord, Creator, God, Savior, Maker, Redeemer, the One who gives you breath, He moves into every area. And what do we see here for Boaz? Even in his place of work, he speaks of the Lord. The Lord be with you. You know, Boaz, we get to this now, this place of work now where he's speaking of God, he's a man of God, he's a gracious God. He did not have to receive her. He didn't have to. But why does he? Why is he so kind? Why does he receive her? He didn't have to. Take a look at Deuteronomy again as we go back. Remember, Ruth's, uh, where's she from? Moab. Yeah, she's a Moabite. Look at this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. God wasn't messing around, was he? None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. I mean, Boaz had every reason. God had forbidden his people of having friendship with a Moabite because of their history of wanting to destroy God's people. That's, that's not a bad reason. It's not a bad reason. You kind of can see that. But it also even puts Ruth, think about it now, she knew that too. She knew that as well. It puts Ruth, Ruth's trust in God as she comes to Bethlehem now in even a greater light, doesn't it? Which is why she responds to Boaz as she does in humility. Look at verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She knew this. She knows that Boaz could very easily say, you're a Moabite. Get out of my field. And how often easy is the temptation when somebody that comes into our life that might inconvenience us a little bit or might be from a people that we're eh, just not comfortable with. We might not be so far to say, get out of my field, but we can sort of turn our shoulder and move a little this way. You know how it works, right? Not Boaz. She knows she deserves no favor. Her people's history she knows her state, a poor woman with nothing, and she falls on her face on the ground humbly and says, why? Why have I found favor with you? I mean, what have I done to deserve this? I'm a foreigner. And really what we see there is a picture. 
a picture of the way every human being must come to God. That's what we're seeing. Falling down on the ground. Why have I found favor with you? I'm like a foreigner to you. I'm a sinner. I'm alienated from you. And yet, you have loved me. Have you come to him like that? I mean, Ruth is a picture of that. She knows she's not deserving or have earned anything. Have you come to him like that? I want you to think about that. Have you come to him realizing you have nothing to bring and only everything to take from him? Have you? It's amazing. He owes her nothing, but he gives her everything. There's at least 10 things I found. I'm not going to read through all of them, but I just wanted to list them this week because I like uh, some of you like lists, some of us like fill-ins. Here's something for those that like lists. There it is. Boaz is kind. He had a plan. He had a whole plan he'd worked out. It wasn't just, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Enjoy the food. Nice to meet you. He had a plan. It went from calling her even by these endearing terms of young woman or daughter rather than saying, you know, stinky Moabite. He says, young woman, daughter, don't go to another field. Don't go away from here. Stick close to my servants. Watch this field. Stay here. I've ordered no one to harm you. If you're thirsty, get a drink. Hey, come and sit towards the end of the day. Feast with us. Sit amongst us. Not over there. Sit here by us. Eat with us. You know what he does? He sends her home with a doggy bag too. (laughs) How great is that? Who doesn't want to have that? He, he sends her home with a ton of leftovers. He probably sent it with everything from that meal for all those servants. It could have been, it could be hundreds of servants in that big field. Sends her home with the leftovers. And then he says, not only that, you can glean the entire harvest season here. Come back tomorrow. I mean, think about that. It's very touching. It's a very heartwarming display of kindness to this lonely woman. You know, some have tried to suggest The reason Boaz was so kind is because he was attracted to her. Now, he may have been. We don't know that. The text doesn't tell us that. But some have tried to say, you know what, it was totally self-centered. He was just a guy. (laughs) Just a man. But the narrative doesn't let us think that. Here's why. Hebrew stories, they don't really do that read-between-the-lines stuff. That's something we kind of do in our own modern day. They don't really do that. The story's always driven through the dialogue in, in these stories. There really is no like read between the lines here. They just don't do that. It was some other reason. Now, he may have been, and you'll see what happens in the, the story in a couple weeks, but it was some other reason. It wasn't just that he was smitten, to put it nicely. Some other reason he received her and gave graciously to her. You know, she asks him, didn't she? She flat out asks him, why have you done this? Why have I found favor? Let's, let's look and find the answer. Look at verse 11 and 12. Uh, by Naomi, uh, no, that's chapter 1, chapter 2. We're not in chapter 1. But Boaz answered her. Here's the reason. All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before, the Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So Boaz says, hey, the Twitter world's blowing up about you. I've heard about you. I know. I know the story, Ruth. It's on the evening news. 
Now, on a first reading, it looks like Ruth has earned Boaz's in God's favor when I read that. Did you think that maybe? What? That sounds funny. I'm just paying you what you've earned. You know, you've done so many good things by being nice to Naomi. Everybody's heard about it. But that's not the case. The key is in the fact, here's what it is. The key is in the fact that Naomi has become a person who takes refuge, safety, under God's wings. She's a Gentile convert, is what we're saying. She has a saving faith in Israel's God. And so she's come under and joined God's community. She's joined his, his, his people. And Boaz now, knowing as, a, as one of the members of that community who's experienced God's grace in his own life, so he will treat her too now the same way. She's come under God's wings. I like how one commentator put it here. He said that you know, she's joined to the covenant community, God's people. And, and God now is going to show her grace here. And so he said, God's grace has a face to Ruth. And that face is Boaz. I love how he put that. God's grace now, because she's come under his wings, has a face to Ruth. And that face is Boaz. I love that. Who have you had like that in your life? Think about it. You might, where are you, God? Look at my life. Look what it's become. Where am I going? Who do you have in your life? Don't miss that. The people that God has amongst His people here that have loved you, that have cared for you, or outside, that are part of His people, the kindness they've done to you is God's grace with a face. God's grace with a face to you. Don't miss that. That is God's goodness to you. Or we asked it last week too, who, can, who have you been God's grace to in our church, in your family, in your life? I know you have. Who have you showed kindness to? You are unto them in that moment God's grace with what? It's good. I got a few on that one. We'll try one more time in a minute, maybe. I like also what uh, John Piper said, and we think about this this idea of showing mercy to Ruth. Why, why does God show mercy to Ruth? Let's read it. Why should God show mercy to Ruth? Because she sought refuge under his wings. She's counted his protection, which is what refuge means, his protection better than all others. She set her heart on God for hope and joy. And when a person does that, God's honor is at stake, and he will be merciful. If you plead God's value as the source of your hope, instead of pleading your value as the source of God's hope, then his unwavering commitment to his own value engages all his heart for your protection and joy. In other words, let's, let's unpack that. A true child of God is in the family of God. And God takes you in as part of His family. Under His wings is kind of what they said. And God takes care of His own. It's a really simple way to put it. And when He takes you in His family, He places His wing over you, but He also puts His name on you. You're a follower. You're a disciple. You're a Christian. However you want to say it. He places his name on you. And what that means is then, he's tying himself to you forever because he's put his name on you. And he will go to bat for you. You've taken his name. His honor is at stake. He's made promises to his people. And once he's made those promises and you're one of his, he will keep them. That's the good news we have. That's the hope you have today. You've tied yourself to him. I'm a follower of Yahweh. I'm a follower of Christ. However we want to say it today. 
You've tied yourself to him. His honor's at stake. Have you taken that refuge in him? Is he your greatest joy? Do you place your source of value in his honor and his glory and his uh, worthiness rather than your own, like Ruth did? It means, too, as you look at your life, as Ruth and Naomi are, that everything that comes into your life, everything that comes in, in your life, is in some way going to work for God's purposes for you. God's great purposes for you. And so Boaz now comes into their life as grace with a? That's about the same. That's good. That's good. Grace with a face. I think you got it now. And so Ruth is kind because of this. Boaz is kind to her because he's experienced this kindness. And now Naomi. I'm so glad we get to go back to Naomi because we left her in a not very good place, didn't we? And we don't want to leave her there. Naomi finally begins to realize that even though the last 10 years she's looked at what has happened in my life, where am I? Who am I? She finally begins to see, yes, God's all-powerful, but he is still good. She begins to realize his kindness too. So let's look at Naomi. You remember her words at the end of chapter 1? Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has turned on me, she said. He's against me. But what do we see as Ruth comes home to share the story about the grain and Boaz and the leftovers and the fact that she can glean till the end of the harvest? Here's what we see. Naomi's eyes are opened again to God's providence and his good purposes. His providence and his good purposes. Take a look at 2.19 real quick. The end of 19. So who is, who, who, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Uh, and she says, uh, Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name, it's almost like suspense, with whom I work today is Boaz. She says it. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, she thinks, Boaz? Boaz? She says, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Boaz? Are you kidding me? She explodes. The Lord's kindness has been brought to us through Boaz. He's grace with a face. He's not forgotten us. God, the living or the dead. So what two things did she see? Let's look at them real quick. Here's the first one. They happen to get enough food. They just happen to get enough food. I hear a couple of you giggling out there. They happen to get enough food. Did you catch that way back in verse 3? So she gets to go out and glean. You see she comes to the part of the field that happens to belong to Boaz. It is tongue-in-cheek. There's no just happened by chance for God's people. There isn't. And Naomi gives us this answer. She says, it's, it's not chance that you came to Boaz's field. It was God's sovereign, kind will. May God be blessed that you went to Boaz's field. I know he was behind it. The answer is God. It's his providence guiding Ruth as she gleans. She could have gone to any field. And she happens to go to the field of a good man, a godly man. And not only a godly man, uh, he's from the same clan as her dead father-in-law. I mean, come on. The odds are a million to one. They happen to get enough food. Ruth happened to come to that field because even when God seems silent in your life, 
even when there looks like there's no hope, He is working. Naomi had 10 years where she thought, there's no way. There is no way He's working. He is working. Please believe that today. If Ruth shows us anything, it is that. I can't give you, as I've said multiple times, the exact reasons why trials in your life today. But it can't be because God isn't kind. Look how He's dealt with these two women. It can't be He's not kind. He's also tied Himself to you by the cross. It can't be because He isn't kind. Because whatever even happens here and now, your forever will be perfect. It'll be perfect. It can't be because He isn't kind. And He will show up for you too. And Naomi saw it and she worshipped again. She worshipped again this woman who had been bitter and hard. She turns back and she says, Praise God! Praise God! He's still kind. Not only that, she saw in a Boaz a redeemer. A relative, a redeemer. Everything was empty. We see a relative and a redeemer. Everything was empty for them. Hopeless and lost. And now the story flips. Everything starts to get filled up. Now this relative, she says, called one of the redeemers, and we'll unpack it more next week. But Naomi begins to suspect that God's plan of redemption is more than just a doggy bag. There's more going on here than just some leftovers or a few bags of grain. Boaz will be a redeemer too. And Boaz is going to point you and I to Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to do. And as we continue, we're going to see next week that He is God's grace with a face to Naomi and Ruth. So we too have God's grace with a face. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has a face. Our Redeemer, in whom all kindness, all grace and mercy of God dwell. Look at this verse. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in, there it is, the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, to borrow a phrase, is a true and better Boaz. Jesus is a true and better Boaz. Think about it. A worthy, honorable man who owns all the fields, right? Who receives in kindness the strange, foreign sinners and enemies. Who shows kindness when he says, Son, daughter, I'll make, you in my, I'll make you part of my family at the cross. I'll give you gifts beyond measure. Come and feast with me. Sit down next to me. Dip the bread in the wine. Do you see it? It all took place for Ruth. Boaz is a true and better Jesus. And you'll have plenty of leftovers to take home. <laughs> plenty. I'll be your redeemer. Not only of your land and your name we're going to see next week, but I'll redeem both your body and your soul forever. Jesus is the true and better Boaz. That's how the Old Testament springs to life off the page is that Jesus, Boaz, is there to point us to Jesus Christ. A true and better Boaz. Jesus Christ, have you found refuge under His wings? Let's pray. Lord God, Your Word is mighty. Your Word is powerful. Your Word is true. It is hard. We have to unpack it. It takes time. It takes effort as we sit here and think and focus, God. Don't let it return void today. Let us see your grace and kindness. 